Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, good afternoon, wherever you are. This is Prasad Injari, and welcome to our IEEE Pulse podcast today. We will dive into the discussion uh, on international technologies roadmap for wide band gaps power semiconductors called ITRW. So my name is, as I said, Prasad Injari. I'm a professor at Texas A&M University, uh, chair of the Digital Media Committee of IEEE Pulse, and my co-host is Sheldon Williamson. So, Sheldon, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Sheldon Williamson. I'm a professor at Ontario Tech University in Canada. Uh, and uh, you're looking forward to this uh, podcast. So, uh, thank you, Sheldon. And then at IEEE Pulse headquarters, we have uh, we have uh, also help. You know, Megan Shikoshi and Alicia Tomasowski in the background. So, uh, today our discussion is centered around the international technology roadmap for wideband uh, wide gap power semiconductors, a report produced and published by IEEE Pulse. So this is a 116-page document with 14 chapters and an extensive one, I should say. The, the two distinguished guests today responsible for leading this important effort are here today with us to discuss this report and provide us more insights uh, so those are Bram Ferreira and Peter Wilson. So Bram Ferreira is a past IEEE president and a chair professor at the University of 20 in the Netherlands. He received his BS degree, MS, and PhD degrees in electrical engineering from Rand African University, Johansenburg, South Africa. Since 1998, he's a professor at Guelph University in the Netherlands. And from September 2019, he's a professor at the University of Twenty, Netherlands. So his recent work is concerned with the, uh, you know, domestic intelligent DC grids, M3C in multi-frequency power systems, and DC grids uh, for the built environment and design of reliable power performance. So our second guest today is Peter Wilson, professor in electronics and systems engineering at the University of Bath, England. So uh, interestingly, his Twitter handle states that he's an engineer, and if you can put an electric motor in something, I'll race it. Is that correct, Peter? Yeah, that's right. So um, it kind of started off with uh, actually a PELS competition called Solar Splash, okay. um, where we racing uh, boats with a mixture of solar and battery um, energy, um, and. Uh, Migrated since then to electric motorcycles uh, and competing in the uh, Isle of Man TT race um, in the UK, and also a worldwide competition called Formula Student, where students build um, uh, racing cars, and uh, I've been doing that with electric vehicles for uh, the past five years. Good. So he's a, as you heard, Peter Wilson is a full professor at the University of Bath, United Kingdom. He's published more than 100 papers. So with that introduction, let's dive into our discussion. So welcome, Ram and Peter. How are you all today this morning? This Hi. afternoon, I should say. Very good. Yeah, afternoon for us. Morning for you, I guess. Yeah. Then night yeah. for China, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, very well. Um, yeah, and, and it, it, interesting, isn't it, with a, the with a podcast in these times when pretty much everything is virtual these days, so uh, kind yeah. of interesting. So uh, we'll dive into our first question. So Bram and Peter, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us more about the IEEE Pels ITRW initiative? Uh, you know, what is the importance and the specific mandates of this program? Yeah, maybe I, I will kick off uh, just giving some background. I mean, uh, it's Pels, our core business is Pel electronics. 
And power electronics has been in the shadow of microelectronics uh, for many years, you know, playing second fiddle in the way that uh, the large investments were done for the fabs uh, in microelectronics. And then uh, uh, the, for power electronic devices, uh, you know, we got the previous generation fabs. So we had advantage of better uh, line widths, uh, finer structures. And I think uh, we've seen that uh, in the development of the power semiconductors, uh, first the MOSFETs, uh, then the IGBTs. And uh, uh, so steadily from one generation after the other, uh, our semiconductors, the power semiconductors got better, but riding on the back of uh, microelectronics. And then we got our own semiconductors, uh, silicon carbide, which is much better. Uh, it's uh, 100 to 1,000 times uh, more energy efficient, also faster. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a new technology, but uh, penetration is obviously hindered by the fact that uh, silicon is already well established uh, in the saddle. Uh, and um, uh, good, uh, reliable products are made with silicon. And uh, yeah, experience has shown uh, in our field or for our, uh, in our community that it's very difficult to displace one technology with another. Uh, you know, for example, with DC machines, uh, despite being more complex, not reliable, a lot of uh, disadvantages, uh, they only disappeared when the uh, engineers uh, retired. So uh, we said that, okay, this is our semiconductor. Uh, let's give uh, this uh, new semiconductors, wide, bands, wide band gap semiconductors, a helping hand by starting a roadmap activity. Good. Yeah, and I, think, I think one of the things that we found was that just looking back at history, we could see that particularly wide band gap power devices were in a similar position to where we were with silicon 30 years ago, 20 or 30 years ago, where, um, as Bram was saying, we'd been running on the coattails of silicon um, in this mass microprocessor market. Um, and so this was an opportunity to learn from history and, and say, well, why was why was silicon successful? Why, why was the the industry so good at picking up what researchers were doing. And one of the aspects was that there had been road mapping for all of that time with very clear targets and pushing research into where research needed to go strategically in a global setting. And so we looked at it from the power side and said, well, can we use a similar model to inspire research and to give some leadership and some direction for the industry people? So the industry um, engineers could see where researchers were going and help direct that and be more coordinated. So it really was looking at that model from silicon, learning from the past and thinking about how we could be really effective to take advantage of this really exciting new technology. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So so in in December two thousand and fifteen, uh, we got going with this initiative. Oh, wow. We got a bunch of people together. Uh, they flew out uh, to the Netherlands at, at the Delft University. And uh, Peter was there. And uh, so we had a delegation from Europe, uh, people from the UK. Uh, there were uh, actually three people from Japan flying in just for that meeting. And then uh, we had some uh, 
people uh, from the US that uh, joined the meeting online. So the uh, question was, uh, you know, should we do something like this? And oh, okay. there was overwhelming yes. Uh, and then uh, it got going. Thank you. Shana. Okay, so, um, so uh, Bram and Peter, so this is great, you know, the, thanks for giving us the background and the history and timelines. This is really, uh, this is a great initiative, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. However, there will be questions, I'm sure, from our viewers and, you know, listeners. Mm-hmm. What, what part of the program do you think would be the most exciting in, in, in order to explore further? What do you guys think, moving forward, what would be the most exciting part? Well, I, I think the... Yeah, okay. I think there are a lot of exciting things because if you look at the impact, the potential impact of wide band gap, uh, it can affect almost any application of power electronics. Um, right. So, so uh, I think one clear value is uh, that it helps to bridge the gap between materials, devices, packaging, and systems. Uh, because uh-huh. uh, these often uh-huh. have been separate communities, uh, not really talking effectively to each other. And uh-huh. uh, so so we hope really to bring everything together and make it uh-huh. work. Interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a really good point. And what was fascinating was when we started this process back in early 2016, following that meeting in Delft, so we held a big meeting at, uh, at APEC in 2016, so the big conference where you get industry and academics together. Um, yeah. And it was, a, it was a huge meeting, one of those big roundtable meetings. And what we figured out pretty soon was there were different communities in the room who would never have talked to each other before, not really. So you had devices people, you had applications people, you had integrators, module designers, um, who would work in their own vertical silos. Um, and this was a real opportunity for them to see the opportunity. So the device people could see an opportunity for their devices to be used in applications that they perhaps hadn't considered before um, and vice versa. So the applications people could see the opportunities to use these new devices. Um, as Brown was saying earlier, historically, people were quite conservative in, say, automotive or aerospace about using new technologies until it had been proven. So this was a, a real eye-opener. Um and so as a result, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that there were some real sweet spots for uh, these new devices. Um, and it, it was, the, it was the, the bridge between, as Bram used the word bridge, between these different technology areas that um, it became clear that if we could enable that communication to happen, and share information, then some really exciting ideas and collaboration could result. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's and it's also not making the same mistake as in the past. I don't know how many uh, people are aware. It's been quite a number of years ago, but uh, uh, in the days of silicon, with all uh, a lot of new power devices, power device concepts, uh, they were conjured by the semiconductor physics people making devices, not knowing what the applications wanted, and a lot of time and money was wasted in those days. Um, <laughs> Yeah, are you referring to MCD and other efforts, which were directed? Oh, ZT, ZTOs, MCTs, you could just name them. And oh. uh, what happened? Nobody knows that, to know about them anymore. Uh, right. So, so Peter, you mentioned about the also the sweet spots. What what are those sweet, sweet spots for silicon carbide and GAN? Could you just maybe throw some light on that? Yeah, well, I, well, I think that 
they're two very different um, areas. So um, silicon carbide, um, uh, thinking about the, the current push towards um, transport electrification, uh, particularly electric vehicles, uh, and also things like much more electrification of aircraft, whether it's prime movers or um, uh, just the, the general infrastructure in an aircraft being more efficient. So moving from hydraulics to electric, electrified power and landing gear and so on. Um, that's such a nice sweet spot for silicon carbide because the devices run faster. They can tolerate temperature, um, higher temperatures. They, they're more thermally efficient. They can get the temperature away from the devices better than silicon. And, and when things go wrong, they can cope with those higher temperatures again better than silicon. So, so the, there's a real sort of perfect storm of um, in, in this area where you can imagine you're, you're, you're driving electric vehicles hard, you're, you're driving motors, you're running hot. Um, so these devices are, are just perfect for that. And I think um, as we've right. developed the device technology, we're, we're really seeing uh -huh. that begin to bear fruit with, um, with a very similar technology. The, the architecture of um, uh -huh. our converters are quite similar, but with uh, almost a like-for-like -like replacement of devices um, being possible, enabling some, some really nice, much more compact, lighter, more efficient designs as a result. Yeah. yeah, the breakthrough for silicon carbide was 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 efficiency. Uh, yeah. So with PV inverters, uh, I mean the goal was uh, yeah to improve to get maximum efficiency in in in, in some places in the world, uh, notably California. You couldn't sell a PV inverter if you didn't uh, meet a certain efficiency uh, norm, and uh, that really pushed the introduction of uh, silicon carbide diodes. And uh, we also experience the same now with uh, EVs that uh, mm -hmm. just by replacing your uh, uh, silicon with a silicon carbide uh, gives you a few percent efficiency improvement so i know you are detailed you know detail in um, the, the organization and the enormous effort which was made there how can how can anyone participate in the itrw if you can outline that a little bit uh well uh, so, so, uh, so one of yeah so one of the one of the things that we we discussed very early on in ITRW was we wanted to have pretty much mass engagement. We wanted people to feel that they could participate in ITRW and, and we wanted to make it worth a while. So whether you're an industry engineer or whether you're an academic, we wanted to make the, some tangible benefits to, to being a participant. So, um, so it could be building a network. So building a global network with like-minded individuals, um, at a professional level, it could be learning from the best. Um, it could be uh, developing those connections to further your career, um, and it could be developing your own personal knowledge. So, so lots of good reasons beyond just the regular networking at, that we would take place at a conference, um, but also tangible benefits for future collaborations. You know, building teams. You know, looking for opportunities for people to work with. So, we wanted to make. It's a very active um, technical network, so that people will get a lot out of the process. Okay, um, great. Um, I mean, yes, uh, you I, know, if, sorry, if yeah, I go could ahead, add something, uh, Sheldon. Yes, I'd like to add something uh, because I think something that we achieved. Uh, about the network is uh, that we, uh, I mean, there are other roadmaps as well. 
I mean, this is not the only uh, wide band gap power device roadmap in the world. Actually, if you uh, add them up and you can also read it in ITRW 1.0, uh, there are five other roadmaps mentioned. Four of those five are regional. So there's a roadmap in the USA, there's a roadmap in Japan, there's a roadmap in China, yeah. there's a roadmap in Europe. And uh, uh, so uh, well, while these people uh, yeah, work together in a very regional context, we, we are global. So, so we enable uh, people from different regions to exchange ideas, to cross borders. That's the mission of hydrogen Yeah, and I yeah. think that that that's that that's a really great point because I think what we have found with ITRW it, it gives all the participants a wider perspective beyond those regional constraints. Uh, so um, each of those regional or um, uh, uh, country-based roadmaps they have their own um, necessary local agendas, and the ITRW has we've we've always seen as a kind of an umbrella roadmap that sits above and. Uh, allows participants to see both their local needs, but also the, the bigger picture. Yeah. Well, uh, and uh, then remember there are two main groups uh, in the IEEE uh, and also in a roadmap activity. So these are people from academia and we have the industry people and we offer to both something. I mean, for the industry, uh, we uh, bring the academic research uh, a step closer to implementation. So we really see also that uh, ITRW can serve as a bridge between norms and standards, sort of laying the seeds of norms and standards based on the uh, research result and research potential identified by universities or other research institutions. Uh, and uh, uh, thinking about our new generation of power electronic engineers now peter and myself and i think uh, uh, two of you also prasad uh, and sheldon i mean i've i started my career uh, testing power semiconductors playing with those first devices that blew up and were not reliable right. uh, now uh, 30 years later uh, i'm playing with uh, uh, these white band gap semiconductor devices together with young colleagues. So these young colleagues, uh, uh, they will be at the forefront of the developing and introducing and teaching students uh, uh, about uh, white band gap. So uh, we create really an opportunity also for young faculty members uh, to set the career paths. So uh, I think I would. Um, I think Sheldon has a few questions on on more detail, getting into more detail of the report. Uh, yeah. So I think. Uh, so well, let's shift gears a little bit. I. Um, I. Uh, you know, you touched upon a little bit on the silicon carbide, gallium nitride, sweet spot, so on and so forth. So why <laughs> even now users are talking more and more about GAN? So gallium nitride devices, just give us an idea for the listeners and us, you know, how are they different from silicon and silicon carbide more specifically? Um, so so this is, it's really interesting because um, you, you could argue in many respects that um, uh, silicon carbide is kind of a natural extension of silicon in terms of the fabrication techniques and the basic fundamental structure of the devices. Um, Whereas GAN is a fundamentally different technology, it's um, it's very much a, um, a, a planar type device. Um, it's it uses a completely different fabrication methodology. 
So fundamentally different in terms of the um, the the way that silicon and silicon carbide devices are constructed so that you can think of them as a heterojunction device mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. With, a, with a very right. different um, structural makeup. Now, right. what that means is that there are some real advantages to using GAN, um, but it has some drawbacks. So, for example, GAN devices um, uh, coming from um, really from a lot of knowledge in the sort of the RF and microwave world where we're operating at you know, orders of magnitude higher frequencies than in conventional uh, silicon and even silicon carbide devices, but also with limitations on the, the the voltage that you can achieve because of the the insulation limitations. So, so you end up with a trade-off. If you can cope with lower voltages, you can operate at very high frequencies on GAN which means that you can think about things like consumer electronics as being a really perfect place for um, the potential for GAN, where you can offer offer much smaller and lighter right. devices operating at much higher frequency. Right. Um, and, and thinking about the other axis, thinking about high voltage. So if you want to go with sort of traction or grid related, you're probably going more to silicon carbide where you can cope with higher voltages. So very different devices, but thinking about the applications, and again, going back to what Bram was saying earlier, if the device community, which it now is through ITRW partly, aware of the application requirements, the, the device designers can think about where to tune the devices to get the best performance. So thinking about you know high speed, perhaps lower power or uh, lower voltage GAN devices for things like lighting, um, uh, particularly lighting, charging, et cetera, consumer devices, whereas silicon carbide pushing the voltage up, thinking about higher efficiency, power power converters for PV, for grid applications and for traction. Yeah, you must uh, remember uh, with silicon carbide, it's uh, basically a replacement for a high power device. It's also a vertical device, so the current flows vertically. Gallium right. nitride right. is as lateral current, horizontal current flow, which makes it more compatible to a lot of other electronics. So uh, I know from uh, let's say let's our microelectronics community that are now stepping up, uh, uh, let's say to 5G, they realize also they need uh, higher power. So there's a lot of interest uh, from the microelectronics community, the RF community, and uh, of course, not forgetting LEDs, that's also gallium nitride. So uh, the potential for higher level of integration, power system in packages is enormous. Uh, right, right. And it's uh, so uh, to summer. And uh, uh, another nice thing about GAN is that you get the same performance of a 50 to 100 volt silicon MOSFET in terms of losses, uh, probably switching frequency uh, for 600 volt devices now. So it is really perfect Excellent. for line applications. Right. So picking up on that, um, and then going shifting a little gears towards uh, silicon and silicon carbide, uh, I would ask uh, the no more unanswered questions about the ruggedness and reliability of silicon, or is silicon carbide going to offer us the same level of reliability in the long run for all the applications? That's what many. Yeah, you must. I mean, silicon had a long battle to achieve a long. It took a long time to get to really acceptable uh, reliability levels. I mean, this, those uh, bipolar transistors uh, that we had 30 years ago, they were terrible. 
and uh, even the the first few generations of MOSFETs and IGBTs, you really had to be careful not to blow them up. Right. Uh, then uh, what they figured out, uh, which was really a breakthrough in uh, the semiconductor physics or the, the way the semiconductor engineering, uh, they made the breakthrough. So if a, star, if a device goes in avalanche breakthrough, that uh, plasma that you get, that, that kind of arcing becomes unstable. So it spreads the heat out evenly across the device. And uh, so these devices became very robust. I mean, they can actually eat up a lot of energy when something goes wrong and still survive. Uh, and uh, so uh, the, the reliability on the chip level somewhat has moved more to other levels in the system. So uh, the issue that arises with the uh, thermomechanical stresses on the bonding wires, uh, bonding wire lift off, uh, the die attachments, uh, and uh, I think nowadays uh, really this overall packaging of the system, of the power modules, the mechanical torques and forces, uh, that causes a lot of problem. Uh, so if you talk about reliability uh, and robustness, I mean, it's a complex problem. Uh, and... Uh, uh, yeah, so we're not probably out of the woods. It can always go better, but really at this time we have very, very good silicon devices, and people are not complaining so much. <laughs> yeah, and I, th I think one of the things to to bear in mind is that um, the because we've learned so much about mitigation of particularly temperature in silicon and packaging. Um, we can apply that to silicon carbide, so it's not like we have to sort of start from scratch with these new devices and learn learn everything from the ground up. We do have to cope with um, devices running at much higher frequencies. So dB by dt rates are much higher. So we need to understand parasitics much more than perhaps yeah. we, we, we used to. We need to understand um, RF effects, transmission line effects, um, and really pay attention to the things like gate drive um, location, uh, track sizes, track orientation. Um, perhaps much more than we used to have to with silicon because of the higher speeds. Um, yeah. And that's going to get um, correspondingly faster. On the upside, of course, as Bram was mentioning earlier, because devices are operating much more efficiently with both GAN and silicon carbide, we have less absolute heat to get away from the, the package. So we can um, be more efficient with our packaging, but we still have to take care when we consider about the stress that we apply onto the device. And that's not to say we still won't have electrical stress, but we're, we're hitting these devices with much um, higher dV by dt rates, which means that we still have electrical stress to consider when we're calculation, calculating the reliability. Um, but it's, it's gonna take time, but we're learning fast. And because we have the lessons of silicon to build from, we have a great starting point. Yeah, there, there are some fundamental issues also. Your uh, wide band cap silicon carbide chips in particular, they're much smaller than the silicon chips. So uh, it means that uh, if you have to absorb a lot of transient energy, you have to absorb it on a smaller chip, uh, which becomes more challenging. Uh, on the upside, uh, yeah, you may have uh, less problems with thermomechanical uh, stresses because of the smaller footprint. But uh, what we believe is is that uh, you know you must look at, at at the problem from a system point of view. 
So, uh, I mean, this whole circus, circuit is exposed to the search. So how do you handle those overstressed conditions? Uh, it's not only about the robustness of your semiconductors. It's really about the circuit and the circuit that you select, uh, your overall uh, layout, uh, earthing, uh, you know, protection that you put in the circuit. And uh, I think the important step that needs to be taken, and there we will, only once we do this, we will get the real value of wide band cap semiconductors, would be when we uh, design our uh, converters to take advantage of the properties uh, and not as, let's uh, properties and the uh, let's say the high speed performance uh, and uh, different type of circuits uh, and not just simply try to replace uh, a silicon device with a wide band cap device. Okay. It's not yeah. a one-on-one -on -one replacement, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, think we're, I think we're seeing that increase in sophistication of designers where uh, we're able to look at multi-physics simulation and we're looking at designing the package at the same time as choosing the device. And, and as, again, as we were saying earlier, the, the device people are now aware of more of the requirements of the application side. So, so thinking about the whole picture from the very beginning of the process, not just as Brian was saying, do a, a device replacement, you know, actually thinking about how to get the most out of these new devices. So let's go to just, just to have a simple example, you know, I don't know how many people know, but I mean, you're not using PN diodes in wide band cap. I mean, you want to yeah. use basically an, an active rectifier or, or a shot key. Right. Uh, so uh, it really, the way that you're going to use them will be different. Uh, and I think the really exciting part is, uh, I mean, integration at low voltage levels, low power levels, but really at high voltage, uh, we can really have better high voltage devices mm -hmm. and we can uh, build simpler high voltage converters for grid applications, for example. So, 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 so the million dollar question becomes, which one's the better option now? Silicon carbide or GAN? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's horses for courses. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I don't yeah, think I, they I think are... They, yeah, I think it's, it's to, 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 you get two professors, and so I think we'll probably give the same answer. It depends. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, they at some places they are competing. I think automotive they are definitely competitive competitors yeah. for each other. Right, uh, right. But uh, we see more if you and look more at consumer that, electronic correct. power supplies, then GANA is on, on, on its own. And right. uh, maybe right. the higher power end, if you traction drives for trains, uh, even the uh, higher power EVs, uh, I think their uh, silicon carbide uh, is also on its own. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think we're looking at more of fast chargers also, right? More of GAN being used in fast chargers because of the current and the high temperatures. Yeah, ex exactly. And I think the in many ways, the application requirements are going to push, push you into uh, a platform of choice, really, that's going to give you the best option. So GAN is probably going to operate at higher speeds, which means that you have smaller passives, which is uh, very that's good correct. for smaller you know things like wireless charging and uh, embedded charging uh -huh. applications so it, uh -huh. it's, it looks really nice plus your potentially lower um on resistance leads to lower uh -huh. power losses so again for those smaller consumer applications gan looks like a real winner um and as brown was saying if you if you're pushed into applications where you need higher voltages such as traction drives then silicon carbide looks good it's, it's robust um it's better than silicon in many cases from an efficiency perspective 
So, um, so it's kind of self-selecting depending on right. the on the application right. and, and the and the yeah. application yeah. requirements. Yeah, yeah, very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fabrication is also different. Yeah, the way you fabricate a converter, uh, silicon carbide is usually on uh, yeah, um, uh, ceramic substrates. Uh, you would make a power module, so you'll mount an, uh, you know diodes and maybe have a three-phase uh, power module uh, with uh, yeah, a lot of devices and diodes. Whereas uh, the uh, at least now the gallium nitride is basically sold as uh, individual components. Correct. And you mount them on a PCB. So you, so the, I think the trend is that the gallium nitride will be more on organic substrates. Gallium nitride, uh, because uh, it is uh, then, uh, let's say, the device itself is in on a silicon. So you have gallium nitride on a silicon or a sapphire substrate, and you will have some other things. So, uh, yeah, I think they are really very different. Uh, not really from applications point of view as such, but really the way that we built them. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, I think the cost behind them. Uh, gallium nitride, I think you can really go high volume, very cheap production, whereas uh, silicon carbide, uh, yeah, you have these high power construction uh, methods, uh, high power converters, the way that you built them with power modules and stuff. That's good. Uh, Bram, uh, Peter, can you comment on the wideband gap semiconductor market drivers, opportunities, and limitations? I think also the report does a good job on um, in the appendix of showing product showcase, and if you want to expand on that as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, it kind of follows on from the discussion about you know which application is right. At the end of the day, if you're a, a system integrator, you, you want to make money out of your products. So. The devices don't need to be you don't want the devices to be too expensive so production costs are uh, crucial um but if, uh, again as brown was saying if, you, if you're driven by legislation such as uh, efficiency criteria then essentially if you want to sell your product at all you may be pushed into using gan or silicon carbide um, if you want to sell your your phone charger um, it has to meet those stringent criteria so it could well be that yes you pay more for um, the power device, but you save a lot of money on smaller passives, um, for example, um, or much smaller integration of the package. So overall, you save a lot of weight and um, volume and cost. So, so those drivers become very practical um, and beyond just the sort of fairly um, technical uh, device characteristics and improvements in efficiency, they actually lead to very significant potential uh, savings and um, improvements in uh, price, both for the consumer and for, and for the company to make some money out of it. Yeah, I, th I think we can just maybe take a step back and see what's already happening. I mean, the silicon uh, silicon carbide diodes already made the inroad. So as I explained earlier, uh, first with uh, uh, it's inverters uh, connected to PV systems uh, uh, because of efficiency, and and now uh, also with EVs. Uh, I mean, a company like Toyota already committed themselves, uh, I think five ten years ago, to silicon carbide because of the benefits it gives uh, to the overall system. By getting the efficiency high, you make the converter smaller, you get more distance on a, on, on, on a charge if it's an electric vehicle. Uh, so it is slowly unfolding. Uh, I mean, some companies, uh, you can buy these uh, power modules. Uh, maybe they are too expensive now, but uh, we slowly see them uh, finding uh, applications. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think the way I see this also unfolding 
is, uh, you know, if you already have a product, okay, what's holding it back, the, the market? I mean, if you have a product, uh, you know its uh, reliability, uh, you know where things goes wrong based on the history of the product. I mean, you're not going to change that unless there is a significant improvement possible or unless your competitor is really uh, sort of uh, right on your heels and you know you need to accelerate. Uh, and uh, I think what we will experience, it's difficult to capture this in ultimate numbers, but uh, just the additional improvement, performance improvement that uh, you will uh, can potentially get by switching over uh, may really make the difference for uh, the R&D departments, developing uh, sections of companies to take the step and actually build products because they have the choice also to use, let's say, newer silicon devices. But even if you replace an old silicon device with a new one, you are not 100% sure about its reliability and robustness. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, so, have the, you don't have that field experience uh, base that you had on the old ones. You know, if you think of things like trains, you know, the retraction drives of trains that are extremely reliable, uh, aerospace applications. Uh, so, so it is really a complex um, issue on which technology. When do you make an improvement? When do you make the switch? Uh, interesting. Uh, so, yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, I have a follow-up question, Ram and Peter, uh, in terms of, and we're getting towards the end of the uh, uh, of our time here. Um, basically, in terms of roadblocks, what do you envision would be the major roadblocks or challenges, let's say, in the way of wideband gap devices? Just following up on the discussion earlier. I think we already experience let's say i won't call it a roadblock i would say uh, you know we already counted the first cent but if you want because uh, yesterday we That's had correct. formula one race and and yes. that was uh, that there was an expe expectation that uh, we would have get this wonderful metric like they had with itrs the uh, white you know the roadmap that drove the computer uh, development of the computers which was more aligned with you know, very simple metric that you could improve. It turned out that it's much more complex. You know, we have systems, various applications, various power levels. Uh, uh, it's not only the devices themselves, but it's the whole system. So uh, we then uh, changed our approach to more, uh, instead of mapping a roadmap, we already want a very clearly defined, uh, 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 let's say, a technology environment. Uh, a value chain uh, and, and a clear product and, and uh, that right. we are still exploring mapping paths. We try to find the trend directions and then we'll get to the benchmarks. So, uh, and uh, the killer performance indicators, I think that would hopefully come, I think in ITRW 2.0 or 3.0. Uh, and that is also, I think what would be important would be to lie the link to standards and norms. Because that's something we have not discussed, I think much detail up to now, but uh, that uh, this roadmap activities uh, fits in between the regular, let's say papers, uh, products, uh, conferences, that's mostly academic uh, at the IEEE and the standards and norms. By uh, getting in this space, 
and by getting also some agreement between industry members, which are really the important metrics, I think then we can really make the big impact. But it still has to be right. right. Yeah. And I, and I think um, from, a, from a sort of a, a, an industry perspective, thinking about actually realizing the benefits of these devices, I think um, the, by bringing the communities together so that there's, we're shortening the loop, if you like, or tightening the loop between the application engineers saying, we need this, um, and being able to, to provide that information clearly to the device community so that you, we can have a, a quicker evolution of devices to fill those technology needs. And also, as those iterations happen, they become more cost effective. So it's not just about pr producing these great devices, but producing them at a cost point that makes them, or price point, which makes them attractive to people to realize in, in products. So I think one of the big challenges is making these devices good enough, but also not so expensive that it becomes a, a difficult step or a block to actually being adopted widely. Um, and I think part of the, um, the, the aids in that is looking at the explosion of electric vehicles and um, particularly renewable energy um, worldwide, both pushed by commercial gains, but also um, legislation where uh, regions are saying, no, you need to, to have uh, a significant proportion of your energy pr produced renewably or in some cases um, uh, putting a, a deadline date by which um, combustion vehicles will be no longer sold in many countries. So there's a real commercial driver to, to deliver um, wide band gap based technology, whether it's on transportation or, or energy provision, that are really driving some of these industries really fast. Right. I think one should not also forget the consumer industry, right? So the, even the, the laptop chargers, Amazon started to advertise GANs and GAN-based yeah. laptop chargers. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Uh, these, that's an extremely competitive market. Uh, profit margins are very small and uh, you have some major companies uh, competing with each other. And uh, so they realize, you know, to get that edge on the other competitor, they need to invest, so, you know, invest in, in this technology. So that is happening. I mean, uh, we don't see it all uh, at uh, within our community at our mm. conference publications, but currently there are really serious technology developments on GAN for laptop uh, power supplies. Yeah, even uh, I, I even saw the for the home uh, electric plugs and so on sockets mm. where there are uh, laptop charges built into the every power mm. socket. Uh, so and what you get, yeah, what you get, you get the performance of a 50 volt MOSFET at 600 volts. That makes right. a big difference. <clears throat> then not, not to forget about 5G, which is which is upon yeah. us. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and its applications. Well, you you have other. I mean, this envelope tracking for base stations, uh, yeah. cellular base stations. Uh, uh, I mean, there are many high frequency applications where uh, it's it's really taking off. <clears throat> So uh, this is, we're coming to the closer to the end and it's my last question. So what is next for ITRW or uh, what will ITRW 2021 look like? Or how, how does, uh, what's the post COVID-19 and beyond if you want to comment on that, both of you? We were ready to launch ITRW 2.0 at mm -hmm. APEC this year right. and so we had to change gear obviously due to COVID 
And uh, but uh, I think the model that we envisage for moving on uh, still applies very well under uh, these uh, COVID conditions. And the model is that we would like to get more involvement from uh, groups. So, uh, and the way we're going to do that is to organize special sessions at various conferences uh, and uh, then add to the review criteria uh, some strategic components. So in other words, if somebody did a nice project, you know, can he also show that it uh, creates some steps in the roadmap uh, as we have defined under ITRW 1.0. Uh, and uh, now, uh, okay, conferences are, uh, yeah, we are sort of uh, in between, between uh -huh. virtual and real reality, but uh, the real next concrete step is to have an, I think, open access issue. I think, Peter, maybe you can uh -huh. tell more about that. <laughs> yeah, so, so one of the, one of the um, things that we learned from ITRW um, 1.0 was that, um, we had some great meetings and great workshops and then the groups would go away and they would work mm. on it and after a while there would be some tangible outcomes so we published quite a few white papers and magazine articles etc and what we realized was that we could do it much quicker if we um if we asked the groups to prepare articles and um uh, prepare for things like special issues in advance of the publication so rather than have all of this work and then figure out how to write the roadmap we'd actually write the roadmap as we went um, and so we're going to have an open access issue in the um, the new um, Pearl Electronics Open Journal in uh, the PELS uh, Open Access Journal, and this will ha have two impacts. One is that this will be uh, free for anyone to read the the, the articles. Um, it becomes a very tangible um, stake in the in the ground, which shows where the state of the art is. And because of the nature of the Open Access Journal, it allows both an industry perspective and more academic perspectives to be in the same forum, which I think is is really interesting. And the, the working groups are now, they've been up and running for a few years, they know each other, they're working, they're very productive. And so I think this is going to enable us to do a much more rapid turnaround of information to the wider community. Um, and then when we come to put ITW 2021 together next year, it's going to build upon these open access and more recent collaborations um, over the next 12 months. So with that, uh, thank you, Bram and Peter, for this enlightening conversation on ITRW Roadmap. So for the benefit of all the listeners, the ITRW document can be downloaded from our IEEE PELS Research Center. Available via our PELS website. Again, it's a 116-page document with 14 chapters that are very well written. The document also has a product showcase at the end, featuring many advanced applications for wideband gap devices. So I encourage everyone to download and read the document and also use the document as a way forward. So with that, our health effort on um, providing, you know, producing roadmaps is, is ongoing. We have, an, as we speak, we have a new roadmap on technology roadmap and power electronics and distributed energy resources. We just got started. Uh, we'll look forward to that um, happening. And um, once again, the PELS podcast series can be subscribed to at popular podcast platforms, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can listen to it on the PELS website as well.
So if you're a listener, I would like you to subscribe to this podcast as well as rate us five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you again for listening to us today. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.